Okay, our <clears throat> this is going to be our last lesson on the, su on the subject of bibliology, and we'll be moving from here to the what, what's called theology proper, which basically is the high flute term for the doctrine of God. So we'll be going there next and looking into such things as the attributes of God, and uh, which I'm hoping will be really uplifting and really wait to. I mean, the more we know about God, I think the more we're going to want to worship God. He's that awesome of a figure. And I use awesome in the real sense of the word, not like, you know, a sporting event is awesome. You know, they can be fun and entertaining, but God is awesome, awesome God. But now we're going to look at his awesome word. <laughs> and can, the canon of Scripture, the definition is the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, meaning a straight reed used for measuring for a measuring rod, also used for a standard of faith or practice. The canon of Scripture is the list of all the books and letters that are deemed to be inspired by God and therefore belong in the Bible. Over the centuries, Orthodox Christianity only recognized the 66 books and letters found in our Bibles, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The canon of Scripture tells the whole story from Creation to the eternal state with Jesus Christ being the central theme. Okay, that's it. That's our Bible in a nutshell. Now, let's start with the Old Testament canon. Now, the Old Testament canon was written over a period of 1,000 years. Now, Moses completed the Pentateuch in 1405 B.C. And Ezra, most likely, they're given, most Bible scholars figure it was probably Ezra that just put everything together in a unit. Uh, Ezra most likely established the Old Testament canon in the 5th century B.C. after returning back from the Babylonian captivity. Let's look at, let's look at Ezra. Because uh, virtually all the theologians that I, was, that I consulted were in agreement with that. But I'm one of those kind of guys that even so, I, want, I don't trust... Anybody's word. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> something that lends credence to that thought is Ezra chapter 7, the book of Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. It's the last Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you can hit Psalms, Job, and back up. Or you could, yeah, yeah look, look at the table and find out what page it's on. <laughs> yeah, Ezra, Ezra 7, verses 6 through 10. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. See, right there. So we know he had the law. There's the Pentateuch. We, he had that much. Which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all that he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the, for on the first, of the first month he began to do, go, from, go up from Babylon. And on that first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinance in Israel. 
That's, uh, and then from this, look at Ezra 10, or excuse me, Ezra chapter 8, verse 1, just add to that. Ezra 8, 1 through 12. Now these are the heads of their fathers' households and the generations of Roman of those who went up from, with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes, the sons of Phineas, Gershom, the sons of Ithmar, Daniel of the sons of David, Hattush of the sons of Shekinah, and who was the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and with him 150 males who were in the uh, genealogy list. Of the sons of uh, Pathmobab and Elihaneh, the son of Jerinah, the 200 males with him, the sons of uh, Shekinah, the sons of Jezeel, three, and 300 males with him. Say all that real fast five times. And the sons of Adam, Ebed, and the sons of Jothan, and 50 males with him, and the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, and the sons of Athaliah, and 70 males with him, and, and, <clears throat> and the sons of uh, uh, Sheftiah, and Zebediah, and the sons of Michael, and 80 males with him, and the sons of Jep- and all these other guys, all the way down to, um, and that doesn't seem like the one I wanted, but anyway, they all came. I know I don't. I wanted something else. That is not what I wanted. All those names are... Yeah, all those names add nothing to the canonicity of Scripture. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, I'm going to have to relook up why in the world. How did eight one to twelve get up on there? Anyway, go ahead. It. Anyway, the point. The the point is, we go go back to. Ezra, that uh, where Ezra seven ten says, and Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra was, you know, <clears throat> he was the main man when it came to teaching. He was the guy that teaching, and if you go back into like Ezra Nehemiah, you had uh, a, a name that's kind of gone out of existence, Zerubbabel, who was the governor. Um, and then Ezra was like the priest and the chief teacher of the nation. And um, uh, so he was, in, he was responsible for that. And the, the law, it says he was, he was well-versed in the law, which means he obviously was a man in captivity studying the law. And he came, came out of captivity, and uh, <clears throat> there he goes. He's going to start teaching. And it's very interesting. You read through Ezra and Nehemiah, and they stood up and uh, they started teaching the law, and there, a great revival set up. Took happen in that in that uh, um, <clears throat> post captivity group of folks in there. And of course, <laughs> I get, as as you move through history, once again, the revival didn't last forever. It, it all waned, and they went into that four hundred silent period where things uh, were iffy at best. So. Now, our next note, the Old Testament canon begins with the six days of creation and concludes with the prophecy of the forerunner to, uh, to the promised Messiah. Now, Malachi 3, look at Malachi. We know that one's a good verse. Malachi would be the last of the, on the list of the prophets. It's, uh, if you hit Matthew, you back up one, there it is. Malachi 3.1 says, 
Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the, clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we know that John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. We're going to see that in a moment. But it's interesting, look at that verse a little bit closer, where it says, I mean, there's, there's a lot there that might get missed very easily. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Now, who is the one that John the Baptist was the forerunner for? Yeah. So Jesus Christ is the me before me. When Behold, I'll send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And then we move forward to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the, the last two verses of the last prophet to write. He says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers and their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, now, let's compare what we just read in Malachi with, we'll start with Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. You might remember this passage, Luke 1, 17. Again, this is the, uh, <clears throat> the angel Gabriel speaking to Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist. In verse 17, he says, And it is he... Speaking of John the Baptist, that son you're going to have. And he even tells him, remember, you're going to name him John. The whole, the whole story is here. Um, <clears throat> he says, you'll go before him in the, in the spirit, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Why? Well, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That, that sounds very familiar, isn't it? That's, that's Malachi. Uh, back to the children and to the disobedient to the, to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he did do that. Um, there wasn't all that many, but there was enough. There was enough. And uh, matter of fact, even in the book of Acts, you read in, the, in the, some of the later chapters that uh, Paul ran into some dis old disciples of John the Baptist and caught them up to speed, which uh, we may be doing that not too long. Anyway, Matthew 11. <clears throat> Again, want to read Matthew 11 to tie that into all this. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15. And this is Jesus' tribute to John the Baptist. And a fitting tribute it is. John the Baptist is, is, was a truly an amazing, amazing man. Um, I, mean, I won't go into it now because I don't want to you know, eat up too much of the clock. But you talk about a guy that, as humans look at things, did not have much of a great life at all. I mean... I'll just go ahead and say it. As soon as he was old enough to survive, he was sent out into the desert. He stayed out into the desert, lived off the land, out in the desert, until he was called. Then he was called to come in. He came in. He did what the foreigner was supposed to do. I think he maybe lasted less than a year, perhaps not even that long, and in jail. 
in, in Herod's, he was locked in Herod's dungeon, in Herod's castle. So, and he spent over, and now, when this tribute to John the Baptist comes up, now John had been in prison for at least a year, maybe even more, at least a year. And so, you know, hey, what a life, huh? You know, and but as humans look at life, as, let's read what Jesus has to say in uh, Eleven seven of Matthew. And remember, this is an answer. This is in response to some of John the Baptist's disciples that said, go talk to him. Said, are you the one we're really waiting? I mean, hey, a year in the dungeon, and you're expecting Messiah to come and just just turn your whole world upside down and move it in the right direction. You just start maybe start wondering too. And so, pick it up in verse seven. And as these were going away, and it, as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitude about John. And I, I love this. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Some little pansy? I'll put it in modern day language. Huh? Some little milk toast? No. And in verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in, in soft clothing? There, again, the little Easter lily thing going on. Behold. Those who, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's palaces. This man was in the king's dungeon. Okay, but why did you go out? To see a prophet, yes. And I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. This, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among the... Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And they're not talking about, in, but in terms of uh, position. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force for... <clears throat> for, all the, uh, <clears throat> for all the prophets of the law prophesied until John... And if, you, and if you care to accept it, that's the gospel, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And again, um, this would be a study all by itself with some of this. We don't have time to get into all of it, but taking it by force. A lot of men just kind of push their way, thinking they're pushing their way into the kingdom. They're not. <laughs> they're not. They think are, uh, and the the violence, the a lot of violence surrounding the kingdom of Christ. Just look over the ages, the the violence was started with Christ. We talk about the church, the violence started with him, and it's never ceased. The church has been under persecution ever since. Now, at the time of Christ, a fixed collection of books was recognized as the canon of what we call the Old Testament. There's a lot that went on. But I'm just going to pick it up at the time of Christ for the Old Testament. Now, Josephus, you know, he was a first century historian. Has a, he has a lot to say even about, he has, not a lot, but he has things. He even mentions that Christ is there, gives a, a human proof that he was there. But Josephus noted, and this may sound funny, because remember, 39 Old Testament books. Josephus noted 22 divinely inspired books in the Hebrew canon. Later Jewish writings typically listed 24 books. Well, I thought we had 39. Well, we do have 39. 
But our 39 books are the exact same books as Josephus numbered as 22, and later historians like the Hebrew uh, canon listed in the Talmud as 24. They are the same books that we have listed as 39 books. And let me try to explain how that happened. Well, you see, the, under the law, prophets, and the writings is how it was laid out in the Talmud. I, I picked the Talmud because that's, I think a lot of the Jews today look at it f- from this perspective. But anyway, what matters is that we know that they're the same books. With the law, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, nothing's changed there. Now, you go to the prophets. It's interesting what they've got listed under prophets. they got Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the 12 minor prophets. Okay, now... The difference, I'll deal with the difference between the 22 and the 24. The 22 list puts Ruth and Judges together as one book. That's with the little asterisk there. And Lamentations is linked with Jeremiah as one book. And that's how the 20, that's how, that was the, the Hebrew Bible Josephus was familiar with. It was listed that way, that those books, and that's 22. And then, 24. Now, what about our 39 books? Okay, well, you've got, again, the law, the Pentateuch, same thing. Now, you walk down through the list of what they call the prophets. Well, Samuel, there's two of them, so you can add an extra one. And Kings, two of them, add an extra one there. Twelve minor prophets, add another 11. Hey, now we're getting up, <laughs> see, now we're getting up there. And then you've got... Um, Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra slash Nehemiah, we have them separated as two different books. And then you've got Chronicles, there's two there. If you run the numbers, you'll come out with 39. Uh, but they're the, exact same stuff. How many Old Testament books were in the Septuagint? All, all, all of the Old Testament books were in the Septuagint, plus some apocry- apocryphal books but they were listed separately. And we're going to deal with that a little bit later, that uh, they were not viewed on an equal footing with the, what we all call just use our numbers, the 39. They were listed as valuable, but not of equal par, on equal par. Um, and I didn't go into a lot of it. I could have, but, you know, I could point out all the mistakes, you know, and like... Um, but why mess with it? I mean, I could do a special class on it some other time, but uh, it's nothing that hurts us and, and, and messes up what our thinking would be, you know. So if somebody ever had a problem with the Apocrypha and wanted to include it, then I could sit down with them or something and talk to them. But it's, it's, it's not a big deal for us. Um, our 66 books are the ones that, the um, New Testament as well, and there's a whole lot. I'll talk about the New Testament today, but there's a whole lot more we could say about transmission and how it was termed and the, the parchments that are behind it and, and everything else. And it's just, there's so much done on it. I'd rather just, if somebody really wanted to know about the New Testament, I've got a, about an hour and a half video, DVD you could watch at home. Take it home and just fire up the coffee. Because it is very, I find it very interesting, but there's a lot of information there. So either coffee or cold water, whatever you, whatever you use to keep yourself up. Okay, now, on page two, among all the recorded disputes, and again, 
about the here's we're still on the Old Testament, and this is a, a, a very good fact. Among all the recorded disputes between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the question of the canon was never debated. That was never a subject that they debated about. So, so the, 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 even the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and Jesus agreed as to what was what is was in and not in the what we call the Old Testament. Okay, <clears throat> the disputes. Uh, the disputes were over the leaders not following the teachings of the books of the of the scriptures. That was their big problem. Look at Matthew 15. We should be still sitting in Matthew. If you left the Matthew 15, one through nine, very familiar passage. 15, one through nine says, "Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do disciples transgress the tradition of the elders?'" For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. They had this stupid washing ceremony, which was not in Scripture. They kept going beyond Scripture, and they had all these little things to do. Um, it's funny, because they ignored what was in Scripture for, for a lot of it. But then they put in their little goofy rules, you know, to kind of like stuff they could follow and, and set up, oh, Stan, you just don't meet with, you know, and it's just the whole deal. And uh, Jesus, verse 3, answered, and he answered and said to them, and why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then verse 4 says, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of, of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father and mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God, and it is not to honor, and, and he is not to honor his father and mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as, <clears throat> teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And I'll tell you, that, that was the whole story. That was the, that's where all the arguments came from. The fact that they were violating the law, Jesus kept setting everybody straight, teaching the law, and they, they just kept going off on these two different tangents. And it's interesting. They quote the commandment, honor your father and your mother. The, 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 these people were not doing that. When they should have been taking care of their folks, they were withholding money from that and putting it onto themselves and, and bolstering what they do. And it's just like, oh, it belongs to God. You know, like, like shut up. You know, and, and Jesus is saying, no. You know, you, again, you're, def, you're defying the commandments. You're not. And then chapter 20, we're not going to go there, but Matthew 23, that's the woes. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You, you, bing, boom. It's a whole chapter where Jesus literally raked them over the coals. I mean, and this was all done, I'm thinking probably about Wednesday on Passion Week. Boy, and they, they wanted to kill him before he said this. <laughs> you read chapter 23 of Matthew, he was just raked them over the coals. And rightfully so. Um, and then we see that Jesus uh, confirmed the Old Testament. And right here in chapter 15, 17, and 18, he says, Do you not understand that everything goes into the... Okay, up to seven. Yeah, it says, Do you not understand that the th everything that goes into the mouth of the passes in the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart... 
and defile the man and oh excuse me I mean five I get fifty and five that's okay new glasses five five seventeen excuse me five seventeen I read it fifteen okay five seventeen to eighteen do you not think that I came do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And I remember the King James had jot or tittle, and what what those jots and tittles are, or these, um, um, the smallest letter or stroke, uh, jot, yoda, the yoda, I've seen the little, in the the Greek, for example, they have little... uh, what they call the Yoda or Iota subscripts, little mini eyes in there for punctuation. And uh, the tittles would be like, just using an English letter, just the printed, the printed letter capital F. I'm doing it backwards. F has that, a line down and two coming across. You add another little tittle to the bottom, you got the letter E. Right? See, they, that's, that's what I mean. And Jesus is saying, even those small little marks that, that describe one letter, as opposed to another letter, that's not going to pass away. That's a big statement. That's a big statement. They're out there. They are out there. And New Testament Bible scholars, because um, um, that truth, because we know the New Testament is, is his word as well. So the New Testament Bible scholars, those that do, uh, <clears throat> that look through those ancient manuscripts, they're of the opinion that they're they're quite sure that 99 plus percentage of what was in the originals which we do not have a copy of but what was in the originals is there i mean that's that's pretty good and again and there's yeah and there's a lot and and this is through um much many many years centuries of study and now they're putting these things in computer analysis and it just keeps coming up it's there it's there it's there. And so you can have confidence in a good quality translation. You know, New American Standard, English Standard, okay. There's you can have confidence that you you've got it. But again, there's going to be some differences there and and a good study Bible will have a little note in the margins. Some manuscripts say this. And what they're usually doing is translating, most of the time, is translating something a little different. Because you'll hear things that there are, and it's correct, there are thousands, thousands of <clears throat> little problems in the New Testament script uh, manuscript. And there are. But it's stuff that can be easily, very easily explained, and it's not a big problem. But critics of the Bible throw those, that data at you. And if you say, oh, no, there isn't, then they'll say, ha, they got, they'll... they'll They'll hit you over that. So don't, they are, that's true. There's a lot of those little things in there. But again, the vast majority of them mean nothing. And they're very easily explained. Uh, one, uh, one the, the biggest one, the biggest discrepancy in there is what they call the floating new. Anybody ever hear the floating new? Bill might have heard about that. The new is the Greek letter N. You know, and, and they use it like we use it. Um, for example, apple. You would say an apple. Not you wouldn't say a apple. So you have an 
you put an N on the back of the A to put an apple. Okay, and so if people copying, if the the thing moves over, because there may be a word that the N could that, that new could fit with, and and it just it floated, drifted over that way. Well, wait a minute, no, bring it back. <laughs> it's supposed to be here. Because it, that, some of that doesn't even make sense. But it's I mean, a lot of those transmission errors. Transmission means that the copyists, remember, no Xerox machine. If you had a Xerox machine, that's the only way you're going to get 100% right. I mean, even the printing press, they made mistakes on the, even on the printing press. But uh, anyway, I'm getting off target here. But it's there. And, and quite frankly, when you think about it, with all the thousands and thousands of manuscripts out there, the fact that you pull them all together and you can find manuscripts that were that come out of uh, Alexandria, Egypt, and those that come out of the uh, Turkey, and those that are found up in Europe, you bring these different manuscripts copied by different people, and yet they all agree with very slight differences and those can easily be explained and sometimes you'll see a verse that has a bracket that says well this wasn't in like the oldest manuscripts um, you, you ever, there's a thing called a gloss I don't know if you've heard of a gloss it's where a lot of times people wrote up on the uh, edge of the manuscript some a word of explanation and some scribe thought, well, maybe he meant to put it in here. Well, and they stuck it in there, and it, then it, then whoever copied his manuscript kept it going. <laughs> and you go, okay, so you got, so they compare the different manuscripts, and there's families of manuscripts where a mistake can get carried on for a little while, and then until somebody discovers it, and then pulls it back out, if ever. But uh, but it's all done, and that actually, that actually to me proves scripture, because God held this thing together using fallible men making a whole bunch of mistakes that we're going to do. You know, can you imagine hand-copying these things to the wee hours of the night under candlelight? I mean, you know, it's, it is a miracle of God. It is, it's his providence that held this thing together. And uh, I think that's, that's quite amazing. But anyway, <clears throat> and Matthew five twenty one to 48, I'm not going to read it all, but it goes, you have heard, 521 says, <clears throat> you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to another brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say to you, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the, in the fiery hell. And he goes on and, and does all these. And again, I remember talking with a guy when I used to be on Facebook years ago. But, oh, look, see this? The Old Testament's wrong, and Jesus correcting him. No, Jesus was not correcting the Old Testament. Jesus was speaking to the spirit of the law, and, and some of these things that he's talking about aren't even in, you know, there's a principle there that had been perverted, and Jesus setting the record straight. And if there was ever a time for Jesus to say, oh, by the way, this book that you have in, the, in, your, in your Old Testament canon should not be there, this would be the time. <laughs> And nothing like that happens. Nothing like that was ever said by the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure he would have set the record straight, you know, like he did on everything else. And so, again, from, and I put my last bullet point here, from a Christian perspective, the 39 books 
comprising the Old Testament canon were settled by Jesus and the apostles by their acceptance of them. I think that says it all to me right there. Jesus accepted them. The prophet, the apostles accepted them. Who am I to disagree? I mean, let's face it. Those are the people we rely on. Those are the people we rely on. Now, the New Testament canon. Okay, the New Testament canon, I'll go through this pretty quick, uh, written over a period of approximately 50 years, consists of 27 books and letters written by eight or nine men, depending on who wrote Hebrews. There's always a wild card. You've got to have a wild card in here. You know? It makes life interesting. Now, the criteria for New Testament canonicity. One, first bullet point is apostolic authorship. Okay, and the apostles involved in writing the canon of New Testament was Matthew, John, Paul, and Peter. You know, Paul wrote the most, but then you have Matthew and John. And, uh, and then the next criteria is close associates of the apostles. And the other four writers were Mark, Luke, James, and Jude. Okay, who is Mark? Well, Mark had a close relationship with Peter, we don't have to turn there. You can see that in Peter 5, 3, we're called my son, called Mark, my son, and Paul. I mean, even Paul in 2 Timothy, where it says, hey, he's on death row. Paul's on death row. He says, send Mark. He is useful to me. Send Mark, send Mark with you. Bring Mark. And then we have Luke had a close relationship with Paul. I mean, you can pick it up like around Acts 16, because you know Luke wrote the book of Acts. All right? He wrote obviously the gospel, and he wrote Acts. And then the language changes around Acts 16, where he starts, where he was, but prior they were saying, well, they went here, and they went there, and they went to here, and this guy did this, and this guy did that. And, but he was part of Paul's entourage, if you will. And they start right around Acts 16, he says, and we, and he starts using we as, we start, as they start moving on, their, on the missionary journey. He included himself by using that word, term we. Here's one of the things where pronouns are important. <laughs> you know, they kind of mess them up in our day, but they were important. And um, we saw this last week, but I'd like to look at it again. First, First Timothy. First Timothy 5.18. First Timothy 5.18, Paul's quoting here. He goes, uh, For the scripture says, you shall, not muzzle, you, <clears throat> you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Mm, scripture says that. Okay, well, you look at, we, we won't go there now, but look, we did it, Luke 10.7, that where it says there, the laborer is worthy of his wages is a direct quote from the Gospel of Luke. which tells us two things. The Gospel of Luke was written before 1 Timothy was written, and that Paul considered Luke's Gospel Scripture. Okay? And then the other two that, were meant that uh, are not apostles, James, and he got a lot of options for James. James is an extremely popular name. James, the, Now, James was the oldest half-brother of Jesus. You can see that in Matthew 13, 55. He's the very first one mentioned. And they go by eldest to youngest. Okay, so you look there, you'll see that. <clears throat> uh, he was also 
an elder in the church, in the Jerusalem church. I mean, an extremely important figure. People look to him. Uh, people look to him for advice. You can, you can read about him in, uh, in Acts 15, 1-20. He was a very key figure in that Jerusalem council that they had about people saying you must be circumcised to be saved. James had a lot to say, and he, says, and he gave his opinion. And it was, a, it was a meeting of the apostles and the leadership of the Jerusalem church. The apostle and the elders even states it that way. And in Galatians 1.19 and 2.9, where Paul is writing about his experiences, his early experiences with the church, mentions James as being a very important figure. So you can read that there. So James is a man of importance. And again, let's face it, the half-brother of Christ, that's got to carry, that's, you, that carries a little weight there, plus his position. And then you got Jude. And you know, it's his, his little letter. Now, and James wrote the one epistle named after him, James. And then Jude wrote that little one at the very end there, just before Revelation. Now, Jude was the, was the brother. He calls himself Jude 1. Jude, a brother of James. I just, this is, yeah. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. All right? And he, and you look at that Matthew 13, 55 list, and he's the youngest half-brother of Jesus because his name is at the end of the list of the brothers. Okay? So you'll, you'll see him there also in Matthew 13, 55. And again, he was recognized by the church. And that leads me to the next point, that all documents must have cons- must have consistent doctrinal agreement with all existing scripture and all books and letters have universal acceptance by the people of God. Okay, and then very quickly wrote about the Apocrypha and we can do this in a minute because I'm just going to read it. The term Apocrypha comes from the Greek meaning hidden or secret. The Apocrypha consists of 14 books that were in a separate section in those Bibles that did not omit them entirely. The books of the Apocrypha were written in the 400 silent year, 400 year silent period between the post-exilic period of Israel, Malachi being the last of the prophets to be written, uh, Malachi being the last of the prophets, and the birth of the Messiah. So right in there you got that silent period. And the silence was broken. If you want to talk prophets, the silence is broken with John the Baptist if you want to go that far. But, um, I'll give the angels something going here that... You know, the first thing you hear after that was the angelic visit to Zechariah, Zacharias, and then it keep then it just keeps going, right? And we've got the New Testament era. Okay. <clears throat> now the ancient Jewish writers did not rec- now the this is gonna, the ancient Jewish writers did not recognize it as equal to scriptures. The majority opinion in the early church was the apocrypha was not part of scripture. But as time went on and the church weakened, the apocrypha be- gained in popularity. It did. Now, in 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared them as part of its canon. Because there's a, there's some, there's a verse there, it's either in First or Second Maccabees, I can't remember which one there, that supports their view on purgatory, which is very important doctrine for the Catholic Church because it's purgatory that and then they like, they indul- you know what indulgences are? What indulgences? You know, for a fee, you can buy your way out of purgatory. Purgatory is kind of like a mini hell to take care of whatever, which is 
a bum doctrine. They're saying Christ didn't pay it all. No, no, no. See, that's, that's baloney. You know, you know, I don't know what it's got. Maybe it's a, you know, instead of, it's not, you know. So anyway, it's something less. Josephus, this is a good input. Josephus wrote, from Artaxerxes to our times, now that's the first century, from Artaxerxes to our times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier books because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. In other words, the complete history referred to are those books written after Malachi, the last recognized prophet. In other words, he's saying, you know, the books of the Maccabees and all those others, those histories kept going, and it's a good history for, about, for, for history's sake, but it's not on par with the prophets or the, what is accepted. Because there's mistakes. There's even geographical mistakes in some of those that can be proven. So... Um, so just know that, and, and, the, and the, there's, yeah. Well, there's a movie, there's one called Bell and the Dragon. It's probably not, I haven't read the old well, property, I'll be totally honest with you. I've read some out of some of the Maccabees for the historical value of it. You know, when studying Daniel, Daniel was looking forward to the time where the guy named... Um, Antiochus Epiphanes would, would show up, and you can learn about him, who was, who was a type of the Antichrist, uh, and you can learn about what he did in the books of the Maccabees. They had a f- history of it. And some of those were, were religious. Right, the, Judas Maccabeus, as far as I can tell, was a righteous man, a believing Jew, but he was not inspired, and he wrote those books okay, as history. And I, I take them as history like I would take Josephus. And you take, them, take all human history with a grain of salt okay and so that and again it's valuable for history and it gives you an idea what the jewish thinking was and so it's, so it's good for that but that's it the catholics still have it in their bible some of them and the jews use them as holy books but i still don't think they include them in their in the torah but they regard them as holy books because they're written by decent people, the Maccabees who were fighting the fighting the bad guys, <laughs> they were they were fighting the you know Antiochus and they actually whooped Antiochus. So I mean, I think that, you know the big victory that's where Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah comes from that period of time, not the Old Testament. That's why you don't find it in the Old Testament. <laughs> Can you say again why the, those books, the Apocrypha, are not inspired? Because they do not meet the test. Number one, there was no prophet involved. The prophet, the last recognized prophet was Malachi. And you don't get another recognized prophet at all until you get to John the Baptist. And, and why we recognize him, because that's what Jesus said he was a prophet. Okay, I can go with that. And, and after, you know, you have some New Testament prophets, but again, you know, the, like the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah types, Malachi types, no. There's, there's a lot of different errors. There's historic errors, geographical errors, uh, theological errors all over the place. Uh, and you'll have in some of those things like, you know, you can pay money and get rid of sin. So the Catholics like that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's how they beat St. Pe- that's how they built St. Peter's Basilica. You look back in history. In, through indulgences. Yeah, that, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of his, it's like, like a lot of problems in our day and age, 
Follow the money trail. You'll get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Speaking of global warming, it's time to uh, close in a word of prayer. <laughs> and other such nonsense. Jude? Jude. It's a, it's, a, it's a great little book. It's a, good, it's a follow-up to Second Peter, actually. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, that we can count on your scriptures to be accurate. And now, Lord, it's up to us to properly read them and interpret them so that we may not fall into error ourselves. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.